hello. Your QL fandom uncle and auntie are here with giant sunglasses, brown liquor in a flask, a folded $5 bill to slip into your hand when nobody's looking, lukewarm takes, occasional rides on the discourse, deep dives into artistry and industry, and most importantly, simping. Lots of simping. I'm Ben. I'm Nini. And this is The Conversation. About once a season, we plan to swan in and shoot the shit on faves, flops, and trends that we've been noticing in the BL, GL, or QL industry. Between seasons, you can find us typing way too many words on Tumblr. Ben, what are we talking about tonight? Tonight, it's time for Adult Swim. Kids, out of the pool. This season led to so much more writing and meta than we've seen in a really long time. There was so much to say about both of these shows that we ended up needing to move both of these shows out of separate episodes and just shove them into one. Tonight, we will be discussing Step by Step and La Pluie, and then we'll return with you all at the end with some final thoughts. Nini and I are bracing for this because we have a lot to say to each other. This is going to be round two of Fight Night, apparently. Not on everything, but on something. So you guys stay tuned, and we'll see you at the end. Okay, Ben, this time I got my eye black on for you. So let's talk step by step. Tell the people, what is step by step about? Step by step is a workplace drama that centers around a young man named Pat, who is maybe 25. There was some confusion about that at the end. Shade. Who is returning to Thailand after completing some of his graduate studies and is now working at a large corporation inside of an office tower. He is the low man on the totem pole in the sort of digital division of this corporation and is having a very difficult time. Very early on, he has a kind of flirty interaction with the largest man who has ever existed in BL and takes a shine to him, but is disappointed when he realizes he's his boss. Pat, eventually ends up in conflict with his new boss, whose name is Jang. Slowly, the two of them start to work better together. Jang ends up putting Pat in charge of a BL advertising project in a mostly queer team. And over the course of the show, there ends up becoming this huge misunderstanding between the two of them about whether or not they're on a romantic arc, as the show is also unpacking a lot of really huge themes about where queer people do or don't fit in corporate structures that are more than willing to profit off of them as Pat and Jang try to figure out what their relationship is supposed to be. I think that was a very fair precy of the plot of Step by Step. If you're listening to us and you've watched Step by Step, You may be familiar with the fact that reactions to the last arc of this show were mixed, to put it mildly. 
Nia and I ended up falling on opposite sides of the fence on this one, so we have a lot to unpack. I'm going to let you have this part first. I want you to just go ahead and have your little fun before we get into the big stuff. We can begin with talking about Mantri Sanu and how much you really enjoyed his performance. His performance, yes. But before we get to his performance, I mean, we say in the intro that there is lots of simping on this show. And I've been listening to our old episodes. We haven't simped nearly enough. So I'm just going to do like a quick two minutes of absolute simping for Mantri Sanu. Because my God, that man is large. That man is so large that for like the first three episodes, every time he came on screen, like my brain made like the boinga, boinga, boinga sound. Like I could not actually focus on what was happening. I had to watch episodes multiple times. She's just posting out wooga gifs in the chat all the time. (laughs) If I was the kind of person who would get embarrassed by this stuff, I would have been embarrassed by the way I behaved. But I don't get embarrassed by this stuff, so I wasn't embarrassed by the way that I behaved looking at this man throughout. But especially in the first few episodes, I just kept staring at him. And then as we got like further and further into the show, like it was very clear that he's also a good actor. So I was invested in the character emotionally, but that also did not stop the four noises in my brain. The man is large. And he's large and he's attractive and he's large and he's attractive and he's talented. That's basically my kryptonite. That doesn't mean that I cannot be fair about the show. There are things that I'm going to say about the show that are not complimentary, even though in the end, I'm just like skipping to the part where I score it. I gave it a nine. There are problems with the show. Do not get me wrong. But overall, I found it incredibly enjoyable. And I can't lie to you. Mantri Sanu was part of why I found it enjoyable. Not just because he is large and attractive, but also because he is quite a good actor. Okay, so I got my yayas out. Solid 20% of the chat is just Nini going, that man is big! (laughs) He's a big (laughs) guy! At one point, I definitely just sent a voice message that said, Timber! <laughs> it's like it would be Tuesday and everybody's in the chat just large. <laughs> in terms of simping, I really like Ben Biumpul's work in this one. Nini and I tend to fall on opposite sides of the fence when it comes to the guys we're attracted to in these shows. Unsurprisingly, she was super into man and all of his work. I really liked a lot of the stuff Ben was doing, and I like Nini's commentary that Ben is definitely someone's problem right now. Oh my god, somebody <laughs> is staring at the ceiling up at night, like, thinking about Ben Bunyapal, because that boy is, I mean, not my style, but I can appreciate good looking. I can. That is somebody's problem. I really like what he was playing with in this. I really like we'll get into this when we talk talking about the queer themes in this. I really like the specific type of queerness he portrayed in this. And I know that must have been really difficult to hold with everything else he was doing on the show. I concur. He also showed some talent. There's quite a few newbies in this cast. Ben and Matt are both newbies and you see a little bit of that, but mostly they I think they acquitted themselves very well. Since we're disclosing our ratings early in this one, 
As you all know, Nene gives me a lot of shit on this show about how friendly I am to shows with my scoring. I gave this show a 7.5 because I think the problems in this show make it hard to recommend to people. And the more homework I feel like I have to give people or pamphlets I have to hand out before they start watching, the harder it is for me to recommend. However, there are a lot of things to talk about in the show that I think are good. And I think because it's T-Bundit, and we have to talk about how much the sort of irritated version of queerness that he's carrying around in his work comes through in his stuff. I think we should start with the big themes because that's what he clearly cared about the most. So, Nini, as someone who is thrilled with this show, what are the big themes you think that T is going for this time? I mean, T is a guy who kind of hits on the same themes in most of his work. And the themes that he likes to hit on are around like queerness and capitalism or like around the monetization of queerness and sort of juxtaposing it against the way that queer people are just kind of suffocating under this fog of homophobia. So that's like one of the things that he definitely gets into in this show, like all his other shows. Another thing that T is very into is playing with inside and outside, like perceptions of queer people and how queer people see themselves versus how the world sees them. I think that's a big thing. He loves a family dynamic where everybody knows, but nobody says anything. That's another big theme that he's playing with in this. These are the things that show up over and over again in his work that I tend to respond to. I find it really legible, so I quite enjoy it. What about you? What kinds of themes did you pick up on? The big ideas, like core statements that I can read from this, is that corporations are more than willing to profit off of queer people. They absolutely want to use our talents, our social skills, our managerial skills, and our relationships, as well as our lives, to sell shit. But they don't actually want us, particularly in positions of leadership. Another thing that comes through very clearly is that queer people cannot experience queer joy in environments that demand a very rigid form of conformity. And also that everything that queer people want for themselves, including their joy, is not something you can have on the timeline of BL. It's going to take literally years for you to find your happiness, which is so sad. One of the things that I think we had discussed a little bit but didn't really delve into is that you feel a cynicism emanating off of tea that you kind of don't like. I don't know if you wanted to get a little bit more into that because we didn't really like discuss that too much. T. Bundit clearly... Oh, there's a man I could sim for. (laughs) (laughs) I think that man is very pretty, and I like how fucking angry he is all the time. So, (laughs) T. is a director who has a really strong eye. Don't know that he's found an editor who works well with him yet, or has found a really good screenwriting team to hang out with, but he has a really strong eye, and he very clearly hated being on the Tarn typeset. That comes through so loudly in Lovely Writer. 
And you can see that this has affected the way he looks at being an adult professional in so many ways. Pat is so unhappy in this show. He's so stressed. And Jang is also so unhappy because he's so bottled up. It gets a little bit lost sometimes how specifically pissed off Pat is about everything that's being thrown at him and expected of him. And you can feel that with T, that he has to play to the proclivities of shipping culture, which he clearly despises. He's made two shows about it now. Quick aside about this, T leveled some, I think, fair criticism of BL as an industry and that it is profiting off of the appearance of relationships of queer people, but they're all inherently fake, and they're meant to be fake. And apparently a certain set of fans did not agree, or like that their ship was used as the example of this, and caused such a stink that they were forced to edit the episode and remove that commentary. And I don't know if this impacted later commentary that may have been in the show. I do not think it would have made the show more legible than it is. But T is just so irritated about the inescapability of heteronormativity in his professional life. You see this for Pat, who doesn't allow himself to even perceive Jang as someone he could be with because of the age difference, the class difference the work difference, and the way that they are queer is very different from each other. You see this with Chot, who seems to be an incredibly talented individual, but is not someone apparently considered for middle to upper management in any way. You've got this with Jab, where he's just like, yeah, I'm not playing that. I got money. I'm going to do whatever the hell I want. It's so frustrating, because... In this show, towards the end sequence, where they ask Pat to come back for one more ride to try and save this stupid department, they assemble a little team together of queers or queer-friendly people, and they end up using everyone's queer-adjacent skills in some way, shape, or form to sell, like, fucking gas stations. (laughs) So they end up having Pat's formerly shitty superior write, like, a BL story about looking for like a specific fucking juice at the fucking gas station so that Jab can very publicly run around on Facebook looking for Jen, the side character he's also pursuing. And then to help pimp this out, they ask Pat to call his ex, who he doesn't want to engage with on this, to help sell this shit. Who was also forced to go back into the closet so that he could pretend to be gay with his BL co-star, which is insane. Like, when you say it out loud, it's like the levels of bullshit. Like, T is very much about piling on the bullshit. And he's, like, doing it and pointing to the audience and saying, look at this. Ain't this some shit? This is the kind of shit that we got to deal with on a regular I'm not even done. The head of the company baited them 
by stripping their marketing budget because he knew his son would use his own money to save this, creating a division between the gays because of lack of loyalty and such. And so, like, that comes through fairly loudly. Part of where the struggle kicks in for me with this show is honestly with Pat and Jang. Like, I have really strong, positive feelings about Pat as a character, as an individual. And I have an incredible amount of feelings for Jang as an individual. And I want to elaborate on those. But, like, Pat and Jang as a unit, I feel was super frustrating and really disappointing in this show in a way that felt kind of pissy from T. Like, I feel like they don't feel satisfying on purpose. And that doesn't sit right with me because of genre conventions and expectations. I'll let you talk about Pat and Jane because I think you felt a lot better about them than I did. Yeah, because I think I had different expectations. I definitely took in at the beginning or before the beginning of the show some of the stuff around the show where T was very clearly saying this isn't a romance. And as we sort of went through the show, I started to understand what he meant by saying that. I think T has a like a complicated relationship with BL, that much is obvious. And I think in a way the story that he wanted to tell here, he almost resented a little bit having to use the romance to tell the story. And it, it shows up on a metatextual level in terms of some of the themes and some of the story points and plot points running throughout the show. He's like, can't I just tell this story? Why do they have to like make out? There is a tension there. There is a dissonance there. So it's not that I don't understand the problem that people had with it. I understand it entirely. But I was just vibing because I saw all of that as like... Yeah, what, whatever, T. Like, I see exactly what you're saying, but you also put this in here anyway, so I'm going to enjoy the parts of this that you did put in here. That was my way of dealing with it, and that's why I really enjoyed it, because what he did put in there, for me, between Pat and Jeng, it resonated, because at first it was so much about, well, this thing can't be, and here are all the reasons that this thing can't be. It's clear that like Jang is just falling deeper and deeper and deeper. And Pat is just like, I can't, I can't even hear that noise to the point that he literally drowned the noise out in his own head to the point where like Jang actually had to tell him basically, hi, I am actually hitting on you. And that like, it came at the end of like a long tale because also Jeng's very aware that it's like an ethical minefield to be hitting on Pat because Pat works for him. So it's just like a a swarm of things coming together in a way that I personally enjoy. And I'll acknowledge that my enjoyment of the show is extremely personal to just the kind of bitch I am. I just like this kind of like dynamics. I like this kind of exceedingly complicated and this actually is kind of an Gordian nut But still, through that all, I feel the way I feel and you feel the way you feel. And if we could just, like, figure some of this other shit out. And we're going to fuck up figuring this other shit out for a while. Then it would be solid and it would be golden. But like I said, I can completely understand why people wouldn't rock with that. It's dissonant. It's incredibly dissonant. I 
fully aware of that. But I was vibing. That's just how I feel about it. My issue is that the show doesn't say that. And we have to take that as the acceptable read to move on. Like, all of the ideas about how corporate life is evil for queer people are loud themes exemplified through the characters. I was consistently frustrated with T in this particular outing because important gay decisions happen off screen. And that pissed me off. So much of his ideas about how queer people don't get to make choices and he doesn't show the queer people making the choices they can make. Like, for example, they get together and Pat and Jang don't discuss what being at work is going to look like for them, which was so irritating for me because they don't really know each other. And, like, I'm totally fine with two bitches just being like, let's just fuck about it for a little while and enjoy this right where we go. But, like, they don't say that. Like, we have to take that as meaning. And it irritates me because he's not subtle about his other shit. It feels a little bit tacked on because you're supposed to just understand this. Like, I took that Jang was broken. I wrote a whole fucking piece about it about how broken Jang was by being in the closet as he is, because he lives in a big-ass closet. Like His closet was so big, I didn't even realize it was a closet. I thought it was an exercise room. No, it's his fucking closet. He lives there. That's insane. But, like, Pat and Jang get together, and they don't discuss what being at work is going to be like for them. We don't really see their romance function at all. And they don't give us a sense of the two of them functioning as a pair until the story is over that irritates me because what the fuck are they fighting for? Like, Jang is explicitly fighting for the idea of Pat, and Pat is explicitly frustrated that Jang is trying to manipulate him into the version of Pat that Jang would prefer him to be. And that is not really confronted in this show. I can't be happy about these two getting together because that particular tension point is just submerged. It isn't dealt with. It's just shoved out of the way. That would have been okay. We're just going to bury this. is an okay choice, but it's a choice that feels like it happened off screen. It's frustrating because Pat's choice to break up with the MLM Big Tall and his choice to break up with Putt happen on screen. Pat processing his complicated post-breakup feelings with Putt is executed beautifully on screen. We don't really get a functional version of Pat and Jang on screen and it irked me, but it low-key makes me sad because what if T doesn't have enough to pull from in himself to do that properly? But he can handle like the painful shit and the breakup shit really well. Like That makes me sad for him, but like it irritates me as a viewer. If the desire to be a partner to Pat and to change because Pat asked him to is literally the driving force that moves Jang through the plot. That is text. 
I hate that when he gets together with Pat, none of the talking about that occurs at all. See, I had a completely different reaction to that because to me, from the time that all of that like wasn't happening and then I saw the way that the plot was going, I was just like, oh, it's a false start. That all makes sense to me. Like the fact that Jenk spent all this time basically sweating Pat and finally like, okay, he gets somewhere. He doesn't want to confront the problems. He doesn't want to confront the problems. And Pat doesn't really want to confront the problems because Pat is just, this man wants me, I want this man. Like, they don't talk about the issues. They get giddy on each other. They get high, nose wide open, and they don't want to confront the bad shit. So they don't talk about it. It's a false start. They don't talk about it. They don't talk about the fact that they don't really know each other. They don't talk about anything that matters. That, to me tells me like everything there's a deep and intense infatuation happening there and they're burying their heads in the sand about a lot to me that's deliberate and that's why it ends up falling apart it works for me on a narrative level i think part of the frustration as well and i think here we're gonna start getting into like some of the structural issues because i said that i did have criticisms about this show And one of the criticisms that I continuously had was that this show feels like it was edited by monkeys on crack cocaine. There's a lack of a certain amount of cohesiveness to the editing that makes it hard to follow some of what's happening. Like you have to sit with it and like really train your brain and do one, two, three passes at it to be like, oh yeah, that's what's happening. That's what's happening. That's what's happening. So I do take that criticism. I absolutely do take that criticism of the show and I agree with it, that the graph of the show, like the way that it was structured in terms of when the pivot point happens, because it happens almost towards the end. I can see where the frustration comes from. Absolutely. There's so much in this show that is interesting, but is delivered so haphazardly that you have to work for it. Like the only useful read I got about the Hets and their role in this was to model what showing up and speaking out looks like versus what sitting in your hands and not saying something looks like with Canon and Beam and their attraction to A, who has a baby in a hilariously inaccurate birthing scene. <laughs> I'm sorry. And I had to crack up like that was the most like hand wavy. Like, I'm a gay man. I don't know how these things work. Like, she had a baby. Like, make it like do whatever you think having a baby looks like. It's fine. Moving on. (laughs) She's pushing the baby and everybody's screaming and pop! It's out. (laughs) I don't know how the baby came out because she was still wearing her pants, but let's, let's leave that to the side for now. I'm okay with that because everything else was so silly. I get them just not wanting to ask Zorzo to take her pants off. There's a thematic reason that A has her baby where she does, how she does, when she does. Like there's a thematic and a narrative reason for that. But the scene itself is like one of the most cracked out things I've ever seen in my life. That's the whole problem with the show. Like there are good ideas here, but like I don't feel them. I hate that you have to think so hard to get to them. 
normally I'm okay with subtext for these sort of things, but you have to basically rebuild the moments that are occurring in the show so that you can think about stuff. I ended up frustrated with Jang by the end because I feel like his arc peters out. Like there's a a totally fine read on a lot of these things, but it is so flat for me. It's fine for a show to make you play with the notion of disappointment, but the disappointment feels petty, if that makes any sense. Like, I don't think the disappointment is built into all the thematic structures. It's just built into the effect that the show wants to engender. It feels a little incongruous, and it's really irritating. I don't mind queer cinema making me feel negative emotions and walk out of a theater going, damn, bro. I just don't like the way this show is going for that, but also pretending that it's not towards the end. Okay, so here's a thing that we don't normally do, but I think would be useful for this show. So let's fix it. Our mantra around here is generally, you meet the shows where they are, right? But is there a version of this show that you like? And what does that version of the show look like? A big problem with this show is they spend way too much time away from the Jan Group office environment. The bubble of the Forge project goes on way too fucking long. The reveal in episode, like, nine, that Pat did not know Jang was gay this whole time, is really good, but needs to happen at the very latest by episode eight, because it creates this huge compression effect on the back half of the show that is so fucking irritating for me as a viewer. The Jang crying and sad shit is great in episode 10 when that occurs. And like he and Pat get together in episode 11, but the gays need a solid, we're going to try to make this work episode. You have to put us in the interior of these two settling into each other. We need to understand what we have been yearning for, for the whole show up to this point, so that we can understand what they're giving up when they sever. It's romance. they got to break up. You have to put the characters in a position where they have to figure out, can I go back to the person I was and enjoy my life without this person in my life again? The answer is no, because this is fucking romance. But we need to understand what the romance is and what they're going for. And all of the development of Pat and Jang as a couple that we're supposed to be benefiting from in episode 11, when they're trying to save the stupid little BL project they're working on, feels completely unearned. Yes, I understand that the reason we're not getting payoff is because their relationship is fundamentally flawed as a false start, but it doesn't flag very effectively as one. Because we aren't constantly seeing the misfires when they're trying to do stuff romantically together. We need to fully confront the fact that Jang is 
brainwashed into thinking that work-life integration can work for queer people. It cannot. And we don't get that. So like when they break up, the feeling is like, "Mm, good, because y'all need it to. And not in a satisfying way that another show might have done. We need to move all of the beats from the end of the show back a whole fucking episode. Also, the decision for Pat to go off and start his own thing, take Chot and A, all happens off screen. This is a huge set of choices. Why is Chot running off to be with this twink? Like, sure, he's playing fairy godmother in the whole show, but why does he choose to go with him? The audience is left to just figure that out. But so much of this show is about the difficult and complex choices that queer people have to make to survive in a corporate world that doesn't want us. So yes, we can infer that Chot was also frustrated with all this drama at work and is more than willing to go work with the very talented, very successful little baby gay who showed up at his job and go off and they're going to get this paper together. I get it. It's fine. It doesn't track as wrong for Chot to do that. But Chot's choice also matters in a show about how queer choice needs to be respected. And they don't show Chot making the choice. Like, the gay choices happening off screen are egregious to me. They need to be unpacked. If the show is about how our choices aren't respected, why aren't we showing the interior decision-making of the choices we're forced to make? I'll definitely take your point about where the pivot point of the story happens. It's one of the critiques of the show that I completely agree with. The critical path of the show, like the through line, to me is so clear. What happens, though, is that the critical path is sort of impacted by like a bunch of these little side quests, whether it is that the side quest is too present or too absent. The milestones are happening slightly off schedule. The way that it's sequenced works for me, but the way that things like lag behind or in front of each other are a little squiffy. In terms of the way that the story is constructed, in terms of some of the things that you feel that you needed to see, or that would have made the story better to be able to see rather than having to conjure up yourself. Like, I get that. Absolutely. I don't disagree with that. I think that is a valid and accurate critique of this show. I live in my head a lot. And so... That didn't bother me enough to dang it, but I understand why it didn't work for you and for a lot of other people. I think it is just for me that I was fine with getting pulled along by the story because I was invested particularly in Jang. First, they got me with man being, you know, the size of a barn. And then I started actually paying attention and they got me with Jang's character. That's where the show like managed to like string me along the entire way. I got a hook in and I'm just like, okay, this is what I'm going with. But none of the things that you and everybody else saying about the show are wrong. You're all correct. You're all correct. I just 
enjoyed it. I think for me, both places where this show really broke and where I really disconnected from this show were in both of the kitchen scenes, which you loved. Like, if we could point to scenes where things break for me as an audience member, it's the speakeasy scene, kitchen scene throwing the food on the ground, kitchen scene Pat reconciling with Jang. It ends up becoming a failure point when Jang resigns from his company in his Canadian tuxedo. Denim on denim, (laughs) y'all. And he says to his dad, I have dreams. And I'm like, girl, what are they? You ain't said shit for the last three goddamn episodes. What are they? Please, sir, talk to the camera. I need to know. And, like, we can infer these things. We can project onto him. I can infer that the restaurant is what's important to him. I can infer that food security for the underprivileged is important to him. But for someone who's as plan-oriented as him, it feels a little weird that this feels like a undercooked and underdeveloped idea for the character that's just sort of simmering in the back. And I'm like, what, do we even put anything in the pot? Is that just water boiling? And so we get to these two kitchen sequences. Chot has shied at Pat for not properly receiving someone's feelings, which is an idea that's been all over BL recently that I'm totally into. Like, you can reject people just fine. Like, you do not owe people any booty at all. But if someone tells you that you're important to them, you should at least acknowledge that they made themselves vulnerable to you and acknowledge those feelings. Fine. Good. Go buy a carrot cake and run to that man. But he goes to Jang and tries to acknowledge his feelings, and Jang's like, okay, we're together now, and they make out. And I'm like, oh, okay, sure, I guess. What? No! And this is when the not-talking portion kicks in. And then Pat breaks up with Jang for what I believe are incredibly valid reasons of feeling like Jang doesn't trust him or believe in him because he makes choices for them Without consulting Pat, and Pat feels like Jang is always undercutting him, and Jab makes a point about this in the final episode, when he doesn't talk to Jane at all, whatever, and (laughs) says, you kind of manipulated Pat the way Dad manipulated you. And I'm like, that's a very, very specific idea that makes a whole lot of sense that we're just going to walk away from because this is the last episode. Roll the fluff! So we get to the second kitchen scene, and I'm trying to accept the emotions of the scene of Pat just deciding that he's going to let go of the anger because he really likes Jang, and he likes what the two of them had together, and he just kind of wants to let it work and figure it out together the same way I promised you the moon ended. And I like that but it doesn't land here for me. And I ended up really irritated about it. This is where I get frustrated. Like, Jang through episode 10 works for me. But the dead-eyed Jang of episode 11 
and the sad, depressive Jang of episode 12, it feels like he never comes back to life. Which may have been their point, but they went out of their way to try and make me feel like he and Pat are together and they're happy and everything's going to be okay now because they're together in the final episode. It feels unearned, and it feels like they didn't finish the goddamn mission when it comes to Jang. And for me, it feels exactly the opposite because those two kitchen scenes are very clearly paralleled. You're absolutely correct. In the first kitchen scene, when they're first getting together, they don't talk about anything that's important. They just kind of roll past it. But in the second kitchen scene, they stop. They take a breath. Jeng says, let's talk about this tomorrow. He's happy, yeah, but they make a deliberate point of not doing the same shit that they did before. They make a point of saying the things. They make a point of taking a beat. They make a point of taking their time. They make a point of actually talking to each other. And to me, that's why it works. I mean, it works as well for emotional reasons that are just pure, like, me engaging with romantic notions reasons, and I'll fully admit to that. But to me, the fact that those two scenes were so different was kind of the point, and I quite enjoyed that part. Another problem with the show that I think makes it really not legible for people is the fact that you don't have any sense of the passage of time. Like You really have to work to figure out how much time has passed between any two events in the show. And clearly we were on the wrong timeline from the show. <laughs> I think they just made a mistake in the last episode. I did a lot of work on the show, but I enjoy that, so I was fine. The timeline is that the first nine to ten episodes happen over the course of roughly a year. Then episode 11 is very compressed. I think they do give us a Chiron at one point that you figure out it's like about three months maybe. And then the last episode, it spans years, not just including the time skip, but the actual episode itself. It feels like somewhere between three to five years for sure. Yeah. The last part of the episode, like maybe the last half hour is like a series of vignettes, but it's just that the way that it's edited, it doesn't feel like a series of vignettes. It feels like scenes that are happening in sequence, which they're not. Like I said, the editing of the show, Monkeys on Crack Cocaine and Ayahuasca. Absolutely. Storyboarding, I'm not sure anybody did any. I did a lot of work to enjoy this show. But I did enjoy it. And I hate that. I hated the sides. Like, they weren't even in the final episode. They're like, yeah, we don't care about them. Get them the fuck out of here. No Kanon, no Jen, just get them out of here. We're going to be here for an hour and 42 minutes. But the sites required literally zero closure to help stick the landing with the mains. Ah, man. They were there to reinforce thematic ideas. And they leaned way too hard into them as a narrative point when they weren't supposed to be narrative. So yes, completely agree with you. That was a mess. It's not that I don't agree with you. We're saying that this is a fight night and I got my eye black on. But the reality is that I don't disagree with anything you're saying. It's just that I was fine with doing that work and you 
are not fine with doing that work because you think you shouldn't have to do that work. And that's, yeah, you're probably right about that. I'm in the business of recommending things to people because I like enjoying things with people. I will not be showing this to Emily because I have to explain too much along the way the whole fucking time. And like, I hate that. It shouldn't be this goddamn hard to enjoy the damn show. I ended up comparing the dissonance around this show to say something like Together, which I think is remembered fondly because of pandemic stuff and less because the show is good. Because everybody acknowledges that the show is a goddamn mess, but there's things that they take out of it. They say, I really like this. And that's how I feel about Step by Step. I loved everything that man did in this. I think he played a 32-year-old repressed gay man really well. But low-key, I gotta be honest, I'm a little burned out on feeling a bunch of fucking feelings about sad rich gay boys. Like, the West is obsessed with sad rich gay boys, and I am burnt the hell out on it. Like, oh no, he's sad in his penthouse. Who cares? (laughs) I think for me as well, because I've been spending so much time with Turtles' Asian family trauma lens that I dug into that side of things like a little deeply with my brain. And I was kind of enjoying kicking that around to myself as part of this. And that's the thing that sucks. Like Jang through episode 10 works so well for me. Like I absolutely loved what man was doing with Jang, how he was playing him, how Ben was playing Pat as kind of oblivious to it, but unconsciously flirting with Jane. We didn't even talk about Uppoom Pot. Uppoom Pot was in this show and he whipped ass. Up was so good. Putt was an incredible character. So Putt is Pat's ex, who was not a great ex to him. This is very clearly a failed first romance on a lot of different levels. Putt is ambitious and he wants a lot more from his life than to just stay in the poor town the two of them grew up in. And he clearly didn't have Pat skills to go to school twice, study in America, and come back to Thailand as a highly trained marketing professional who can go into a corporate environment and even with every goddamn employee in there working on his damn nerves, still be the best person that they have on their team. Pud doesn't have that. He's pretty and he's charming and he's an actor. He has to go into BL. And so he can't have a boyfriend. Which is very fucked that gay people cannot be out in BL. Insane. Putt is an incredible character. He is simultaneously deeply unlikable and also incredibly sympathetic. Up is so good in this show. And I think Ben, who has an incredibly internal character, who really could have benefited from a journal (laughs) so that we could hear his thoughts more often, also does a really good job playing someone who is barely keeping it together and trying to restrain their quick temper. Ben does a good job as a fairly new actor dealing with some really complex internal things that have to be externalized in a film tradition that leans towards bombastic. That's really difficult to do. Bruce is in this. Bruce had such a rough character to portray and lovely writer. And it was hard to really like that character, even if you felt bad for them. 
So glad we got a character for Bruce that we loved this time in Chot. Zorzo is in this. She's incredible. We love her. She can do whatever she wants. She shows up on a set and we're just like, hello, Zorzo. What do you want to do today? It's just so much fun watching this cast work together. Even the new people. Saint had some difficulties with his romantic partner. And I think that's because he was new and nervous about doing that right. But he was really, really good with Ben. When Jab was interacting with Pat, Saint was really good. And you can see why he was cast. His chemistry with Ben felt so natural and didn't read as like weirdly sexual or romantic, which is very easy to fall into in BL when they put literally any boys in the same room with each other. They did a great job letting queer friendships feel like queer friendships in this show. There's so much that's genuinely good in this show, which is why I feel like I have to give it a 7.5. Like, if it had just been kind of bad and muddled, I'd have probably given it an 8 for just pure gumption. But it's frustrating because it feels like everyone understood what the mission was, and the plan fell apart with contact with the enemy immediately, and they did not regroup at all. This is sounding like video game stuff. I'm kind of pissed. I'm in captain mode right now. I'm assessing the film and going over everyone's screens, and we're talking about who fucked up here. The most important thing to ask now is, where do either of us sit when it comes to t Bundit? And D-Hop House. I am a T-Bundit fan. I see some of the things that he wants to say. I think that maybe he needs some guardrails. And maybe to lighten up a little bit. Because he has good ideas. And the ideas, he makes them very legible when he wants to. I am curious to see how he does with some guardrails. Sometimes... An artist needs a few guardrails to really focus themselves. So I am still down with T, and I'm interested in seeing the rest of what he's putting out this year. How about you? I just want to grab him like William Shatner in a classic Star Trek episode by both of his upper arms and say very clearly, you got to stop being mean to the audience, bro. They're on your side. It feels like he's beefing with us, the audience, in Step by Step. Like, it feels like he resents that the only way he can tell queer stories and get funded is to do queer romance, which I don't know that he's interested in, even though clearly he cares a lot about queer existence, which is a very complicated space to sit as an artist, particularly with what the zeitgeist is feeling right now. But I need him to not take that energy out on us as the audience. Like, we signed up for romance, bro. Stop making us feel bad for wanting that. It just feels like T is just mad and yelling in the room. And we're like, I get that you're mad, bro, but this is unfun for all of us. We are on your side, and you are taking this out on us. He's that friend who's right, but fuck, dude. (laughs) that's all i've got it's a chop for me i'm sorry (laughs) no i mean sometimes we disagree my friend that's just the way it is (laughs) 
for me it's nine for ben it's a seven and a half so that works out to 8.25 yeah that sounds about right it's not bad but it's not good 8.25 for step by step and entry into contention for the girl you tried award for this season Okay, so we are talking all things La Pluie. Ben, tell us what La Pluie is about. La Pluie is a sort of speculative fiction romance set in a world very similar to ours, where a small subset of the population experience temporary sensory loss whenever it rains as a form of deafness. Of that incredibly small population, an even smaller portion of them, when they come of age, which is 20 in Thailand, they may begin to hear another person's voice whenever it rains. Those people are seemingly tied to each other by this rain-based connection, and other people have described them as soulmates. Our protagonist, Seng Tai, is a... 22-year-old who experiences rain deafness. He has three brothers, one older, and both of his parents are what people call soulmates. When he turned 20, his parents wanted him to know that they were getting a divorce. And this shattered Sengtai's faith in the concept of soulmates, and he spent the next two years actively avoiding speaking to his soulmate at all. Two years later, he happens to run into him in a cafe, realizes his soulmate is hot, and then decides to maybe give it a shot. And the show becomes this ongoing exploration of the concept of romance itself, unpacking whether or not the soulmate's concept is real, betrayed by incredibly emotionally aware characters. Our primary four characters are Seng Tai, our protagonist, who's a writer, Pat, his soulmate, who is a veterinarian and slightly older than him and very cool. You have Seng Tai's little brother, Seng Tian, who's kind of a rascal who does not have rain deafness, but very much believes in the concept of soulmates. And then there's Lam Fawn, a boy who's also in school with Seng Tian who adamantly refuses to believe in soulmates and causes his own problems along the way. There's quite a colorful cast of supporting characters, and this is probably the most legible show that we've ever watched. From the very first scene, the show is nothing but constant payoff. Hmm. I don't know about from the very first scene, because as you know, it took me a few episodes to kind of get there. I started and stopped and then had to be cajoled back in. And I do not regret coming back in. The line on this for me is that I think soulmates are bullshit. I've never been a fan of the soulmate trope. In the first episode or two, I'm just kind of like, I don't know that they're going to do anything interesting with this. And then sometime around, it was definitely around episode four. And I know it was around episode four, because isn't that when Ty bit that man? 
We're going to talk about this thing. <laughs> Ty did bite that man in episode three. Ty, my precious little alley cat. That was when I decided I was in and I was going to keep watching. I mean, he literally got drunk and bit pots. And I was like, okay, this is going to be fucking awesome. <laughs> Who bites somebody? Someone unhinged. <laughs> exactly. That's the point. And you know, I love unhinged. So I was in for the duration after that. That was like the end of episode three when he bit him. And then episode four, it just keeps getting better. Let's get properly into the soulmate stuff. I stand by my comment that this show begins paying off from the very first scene. We read the blurb, we get our little intro, and he's like, we got soulmates in this world. I can't hear when it rains. There's a boy who talks to me when it rains. And we're like, oh man, these two are going to fuck real good. And then the show opens with divorce. And I was like, never mind, I am seated. Right away, the show is telling you that it is going to challenge the presumptions built into its core premise. It spends the entire time interrogating its premise with really legible characters. And I think you provided the clearest read on the sort of primary archetypes these characters fit when you describe them in the framework of faith. So please elaborate on your analysis. The key thing all our characters, our key characters are dealing with in the show is whether they believe in soulmates or not. So you have Tian, who is absolutely a true believer, 100% believes in soulmates, no matter what has happened to potentially shake his faith in soulmates, he totally believes in it. Then you have Tai, who I described as an apostate, because Tai used to be a true believer, and then his faith was shattered. And so he's sort of gone against believing in soulmates. In terms of their love interests, you have Pat, who is sort of agnostic on the idea. Eh, I don't know. Maybe soulmates are real. Maybe they're not. Doesn't really matter to me. I don't know what to believe, but I'm not going to let it affect what I'm doing. And This is the way I feel about things. And then you've got Lomfon, who is an atheist, not just an atheist, like a rationalist atheist. He's just like, soulmates are bullshit. I don't buy this. I don't believe in anything that this is happening here. And then what the show does with those four viewpoints is sort of brings them all around to a kind of agnosticism. So in the end, they kind of all get to where Pat started. Then one of the things that the show does towards the end, really at the end, is bring Pat around to being sort of a true believer, not necessarily in the sense of the rain deafness connection being a soulmate connection, but believing in the idea of having a soulmate. I don't think that's in any way related to the rain deafness connection at all, but more about choices and the way that he feels about Ty and the way that Ty feels about him and the relationship that they are building. I found that really interesting where in the end everybody kind of comes around to the agnostic viewpoint. Pat's is the one who moves towards a, a believer, but not in the whole myth. I think what works for me really in the show when it comes to the belief in soulmates or not 
is the show understands that belief without action is meaningless. In the case of Tai and Lom Fawn, their choices and inaction create immense harm for the people around them that they claim to care about. In the case of Tai, he hurts Pat for years with his silence. Like It's totally fine for him to want to work out his comfortability with the rain-based connection privately and on his own time. But he owed it to Pat to say that. Even just, I'm uncomfortable by having you in my head. Please don't talk to me when it rains. That's all he had to say. It's the silence that was really cruel for me. He's hurting Pat and punishing him because his parents let him down. That's really shitty. Lomfon glomps on to Ty for whatever reason and just determines he's supposed to be with Ty, actively ignoring the growing relationship between him and Tian, hurting everyone along the way. Whereas Pat and Tian are both actively treating people with immense kindness and care because of how they believe and how they move through the world. Tian cares a lot about his brother. He knows his brother was hurt by what happened to their parents, and he gives excuses for him, and he tries to take care of his brother. He tries to make himself small to take care of his family and the people around them, even if he's a little bit feisty. And Pat, who maybe doesn't care about the soulmate shit at all, sees Ty once. Is like, whoa, I am inextricably drawn to this person. And pursues him very kindly. The people with the most angst about whether or not this shit is real are the ones doing the most harm to other people. It's the people who are most pissy about faith being the worst in their relationships. Look at us here being a couple of lapsed Catholics on the podcast. <laughs> there's so much that the show wants to say about that idea of faith without works being dead. So much that the show wants to say about the relationship between chance and choice. I think the show itself is agnostic on whether uh, soulmates are real, but I think the show does also say there is some mix of chance and choice in romance. You ran into this person in a coffee shop, that's chance. But what you do next is choice. There are little things sprinkled throughout, like Pat and Ty finding out once they've decided to be together, finding out that they actually had a connection from earlier on because Pat's grandmother used to live next door to Ty. So when Ty's parents split up and he was like really sad and depressed about it, Pat saw this kid crying and he just decided to be kind to this kid and he helped Ty through like the immediate aftermath of his parents' divorce. And in return for that kindness, Ty sort of helped him through the death of his grandmother. They never saw each other's faces or anything like that. This was a happenstance. This was a chance encounter through Pat's kindness and Ty's kindness in return. That became a connection between them. Again, chance and choice. It was by chance that Pat saw this kid crying, but it was a choice to be kind to the kid next door. 
that's threaded throughout the story in different parts. This idea that chance brings you to the table, but choice determines what happens when you get there. I feel very strongly as a lapsed Catholic that none of the beliefs matter if you're just trying to be right. What matters is how you treat people. The show is more interested in the choices than the chances, but it does put the chances sort of in there. You know that the show is interested in the choices because of the way that it deals with the parents and the parents' divorce and how the parents have made it through their divorce and continue to be people who are together in dealing with their children who still talk to each other when it rains, who have moved out of a romantic phase and into a platonic phase in their lives to the point where the mom can get remarried to somebody who is more suited to her. And this doesn't affect their friendship. I really enjoyed the aspects of the show that really harped on the idea of choice and choosing how you're going to build a relationship with somebody, whether it is romantic or platonic, rather than fate putting somebody in your path and that feeling like a predetermination of who that person is going to be to you. That's why, in the end, I did come around to La Pluie after not being interested at the beginning. They fucked with soulmates, and I like that. I feel the need to rant. The floor is yours, sir. Speak directly into the microphone. I'm so glad that the show ended by saying that the soulmate stuff was a trap. It was really frustrating to see everybody caught up in the soulmate stuff and the mechanic of that as this verification tool. Maybe it's the whole lapsed Catholic thing and having a very complex relationship with faith and doubt. Because I got the whole notion that the purpose of all of this is about choice. It's about what you do with the opportunities you're given and how you treat the people when you're there. It was really frustrating to watch so many members of the audience just really struggle with this show because they needed the soulmates thing to either be bullshit or to be confirmed. I really like that the show very politely sidesteps answering that, because what matters is how people treat each other. The opening scroll of the show is a happy couple that is a guy with rain deafness hanging out with somebody who is not. Like These things were legible from the beginning for me, and it was so tedious, week in and week out, dealing with the like the, the weather report. Are the soulmates real this week? Stop. Since we're ventilating the show's take on soulmates, so to speak. Yeah, let's talk about somebody who clearly got it wrong in the show. <laughs> let's talk about Lum Fun getting that ass beat and why it was absolutely necessary. <laughs> we're going to begin where we always sat. Lum Fun is rude. And Pat should have punched him harder. And like, just I heard like a million like people just turning the podcast off at this point. But it's it's a true, it's a fact. Look, I do not care. Here's the thing: Lom Fawn is beefing with people for no reason from the jump. 
He's beefing with TN in the store over a goddamn magazine. He's beefing with other classmates. He has no goddamn friends. He was rude to Bo. He was rude to Ty's boss, and he likes Ty. And he still couldn't muster up like a shred of interest in anything she was doing, or even general politeness to shake her hand and say, hi, how you doing? Rude. He only cares about what he's thinking about. There's no regard for other people. Like, yeah, sure. He's like 20. And like, kids got to grow up at some point. But also, tasted a little bit of fist will reorient your life a little bit sometimes. (laughs) True. (laughs) He's just so dramatic. There's this development over the course of the show where Ty ends up with two different soulmates with connections to him. Mom Fawn is like, I'm hearing Ty's voice when it rains. Instead of like sending like a group text saying like, hey, I believe something very strange may have happened to me. I think we should all meet up next Sunday at four o'clock because I've checked the weather and we should all be together for this. And they could have handled this like adults and talked about stuff. No. Bomb Fawn is rude and selfish. And so he needs to corner Ty in the rain, kiss Ty, and be like, whoops, my bad. And then when Pat rolls up on him, throwing haymakers, he's like, whoa, bro, no, he's mine. He's yours. Little boy, please. I got a lot of smoke for this motherfucker. I got some notes (laughs) over here. This dude hung out with Tien at a cast party. Cuddled with drunk Tien, calls his brother because Tien needs a ride home. And then while Tien is mostly unconscious, flirts with his older brother? Gross. He's in his own zone. He's not thinking about anybody else. He's not interested in whether what he does affects anybody else and how it affects anybody else. And it takes, yes, quite frankly, a jaw rocking for him to get his head out of his ass completely concur that it was needed because i mean think about this okay even if he actually liked ty which he doesn't really does he think that this is the way to go about getting ty (laughs) let's ponder this for a second just a, a short second okay it doesn't even make sense and then he thinks that maybe he might feel something for tian he doesn't know But instead of, I don't know, maybe, hmm, going on a date with Tien instead of Ty. (laughs) Like, there's so many other ways that Lomphon could have gone about what he went about. He just did it in the messiest way possible. Everybody was already telling him, look, I'm seeing what you're doing here, and I'm going to need you to take a step back. Tien picked up on it because they were on that mountain. And he saw Longfawn starting shit and looking at his brother. And he pulled that motherfucker aside. And he said, I am a third son, bitch. I will bury you on this mountain. Don't ever look at my brother again. Their relationship is theirs. And if you fuck with them one more time, they will not find your fucking corpse on this mountain. Everybody who saw it told Longfawn, yo, you need to mind your own business. And if they didn't tell Lomfon, they told Ty. So Bo told Ty, look, Lomfon's up in your business. You need to say something and get that kid away from your business. 
Tien told him, mind your own business. Pat told him, mind your own business. Because Pat definitely knew that Lam Fon had a crush on Ty. And then Lam Fon's like, well, I heard Ty's voice in the rain. So now it's my business. And instead of talking to Ty properly, he's going to go like beef with Pat and be like, I'm taller than you. So (laughs) (laughs) that boy got on my goddamn nerves. Like he's an excellent character. Let's talk about how Ty needed that ass whoop too. That's what I was about to say. Like we're on Lumfon and Lumfon deserved it, but Ty also deserves some smoke and I'm here to give it to him. Ty, baby boy. Pat carried you down that mountain after you ran up there in the first place off of some bullshit. He had to carry you back down that mountain. You'll come back down the mountain as boyfriend. You looked at that man in the car and told him, I want to stay over at your place tonight. And that man beat land speed records to take you back to his house. You literally got the booty in every single room in that apartment. And then you decide to... Go on a date, not date with Lam Fon. I feel like it was a little bit too, like, he was slightly flattered. Let me just retie his rights. <laughs> this man, after finally getting what he thinks he's wanted this whole time, realizes there may be a situation going on with his brother's friend. He could have asked his brother, like, at any moment, yo, what's up with Lomfon? Like, Bo was already saying dude was sniffing around, and he asked me to do some sort of thing, and I don't know how I feel about it. What's up with you and your little friend? And Tian could have been like, oh, no, I actually like him. Why is he doing this? Like, he could have solved this any number of ways that were less dramatic than, let me lie to my boyfriend. Because I'm worried how he's going to handle knowing that this little dude is sniffing around. As if he didn't already know. It is so frustrating that Pat, who was clear from the beginning that his primary concern was Sang Tai's comfort and happiness. For Sang Tai to just actively ignore this man's vocalized needs. Man is telling you. He wants you to say the things. And you're like, well, don't my actions show it? No, baby boy, because you're out here with some other dude in the middle of the motherfucking rain, and you need to do better. And then that boy is at his mom's wedding. Your dad has said he is happy for her. He likes the guy that she's going to be with, and he's happy for the life that they're going to have. And this boy ruins their wedding, making it all about him, because he's mad His parents' soulmate thing didn't work out. Oh, I was so mad at that boy. He was so frustrating as a protagonist sometimes because he just shits on all the relationships in his life. He shits on his mom. He's low-key shitting on his dad. He relies on his little brother too much without really paying attention to him in a meaningful way. And he beats up on Pat. And he does the same thing to Bo. Like, he works with Bo. She's clearly covering for him at work because he works with a bunch of other people and refuses to ever learn their names or really engage with them. This is not to say that we do not love my little alley cat, Ty. But he is a fucking alley cat. (laughs) He has the predisposition and morals of one, quite frankly. Like, he's scratching and biting. In some ways, he's just as rude as Lamphon. 
But like, you see where all this stuff comes from. And you want him to like, just for a second, like, dude, retract the claws and stop making decisions for people that are more about what you want and what you're interested in than what they want and need and have said that they want and need. This is what I mean, like the show being legible and saying the same thing the whole time. Like as early as episode two, Ty is like, hey, I found my soulmate. And Tian says quite plainly, you fucked with love. Unfuck it. And when he finally has that confrontation with his parents, where they show him the complexity of human relationships, where his dad also says, when you have love, you need to take care of it. It's so funny, like for all that Ty is obsessed with his dad, Tian is the one who picked up on his dad's like core skills. And Ty is so much like his mom. I'm really glad the show finally recognized that towards the end. Ty recognizes that he's doing to Pat what his mom was doing to him, not giving him any information, leaving him to suffer in silence without giving him the context that he's desperately needing. And it showed a lot of growth that he finally got his ass together and spent the whole episode running around looking for that man. Because goddamn, I want to get this aside in here, how Ty's dad read his queer to me the whole time. I don't know if he did to you. He did, but I didn't know if that was the actor or the character. I think it may have been both. And I think I like the way the show handled it. I think it was very useful for subtext to show that Ty's dad is queer and to not confirm it at the text level. Because La Pluie is not interested in structural homophobia. But I thought it was a really interesting premise to consider what happens if a straight person and a gay person think they're soulmates. What happens if a man who knows who he is goes into a straight marriage, loves his sons, loves his wife, but they can't work because they can't be the kind of partners they need to be to each other, which is exactly what the show says without saying it's because the dad was queer. And I think I really like the show leaving that as subtext for us to consider because the show does such a great job at building emotionally intelligent gay relationships otherwise. I think there were lots of markers for it. Like there were markers in the character themselves. There are markers in the relationship that the father and the mother had, the way that the mother was the breadwinner and the father was the caretaker. There are markers in the father's chosen profession. He's a chef. There's a sort of a marker in this idea of him being, I think it was a private chef to some ambassador and spending a lot of time with this ambassador. All of these are things that I picked up on, and I don't know if they were Easter eggs or if they were just throwaways, but there were like lots of tiny little markers. And also him being the one to actually say that they should break up. Yeah, there, there are lots of tiny little, like I said, could be read as markers, could just be coincidental. But the show is so well-constructed that I am loath to leave it to the idea of coincidence. I agree. I think it's well done. Ty needed to get his shit together. Because as far as I'm concerned, Pat is maybe the most perfect romantic interest that BL has ever created. And that also feels really intentional for the themes that they're unpacking. 
La Pluie is a romance novel. Like, if you look at the way it's structured, the way it's organized, La Pluie is a romance novel that is sort of an anti-romance novel, almost. And in a romance novel, the love interest is essentially perfect. If they have a flaw, it's something that is... My only flaw is that I care too much or some shit like that. You know, that kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) That fits into that mold in a way, but it's also subverted a little bit. So he's handsome. He's a vet. He is kind to animals. He's kind to people. He's very sweet. He is 100% into Thai. He drives a Porsche. Is a very nice apartment. <laughs> He's rich. You know what I mean? All the markers of like the perfect romantic hero. He has no family drama. None whatsoever. He has a little tragic backstory with grandmother dying. Like he is the perfect romantic hero in a trope sense. Listen, I think sometime around the time that Ty bit that man, and yeah, I'm still not over it. <laughs> he did bite that man. <laughs> I remember saying to Ben, Oh, so like Ty's an alley cat, but Pat is a literal angel. Because after he bit that man and then he threw up on him, still that man took him home, let him like lay in his bed. He gave him clothes, left him alone to change his own clothes. And then in the morning when he woke up hungover and can remember shit, he woke up and there was a note because he had cleared out. He didn't want to make him feel awkward or anything like that. He cleared out. He left a note saying all the things that he did the night before because he didn't know if he was going to remember. He was perfect about it. He was such a gentleman. As one of the leaders of the Pat Defense Squad, I'm going to have to lead a charge for my boy. (laughs) Because my man is the best communicator. He clearly understands that something is wrong with his soulmate. Doesn't pressure him to talk to him. Just talks back to him, tries to be kind to him, tries to say nice things to him, eventually sees a guy who he wants to pursue. He does not know that it's Ty, but the first thing he does that night is like, hey, I don't know what's going on with you, but I saw the cutest boy that has ever existed, and I'm going to pursue him. So, uh, deuces. So, they end up at this club. Ty gets low-key abandoned by his friends. So, Pat takes care of him. Ty bites that man, tries to bite him again. Later that night, starts fussing with Pat, accusing him of being a player, and then makes out with him. Like, yes, he was drunk, but makes out with him. Like, bro. Pat starts pursuing him earnestly after that by leaving the note. And then Ty, who does have communication skills and social skills, does the cutesy thing you would do in a movie he's gonna return the fucking clothes to pat in a cute little bag waiting outside his job and the two of them go out on the cutest little date full of all sorts of great stuff also like i haven't talked about it that much here title is really really good i love the way title and p both play their characters in this show the way title played ty during that dinner they had was so good at one point when he asks pat do you always eat like this and he points with the knife (laughs) he points with the knife it is so so perfect and pat is so clever like ty wants to hang out and they want to go on a date 
And he's like, let me not bullshit about who I am. They ride in his Porsche to a fancy restaurant that Pat clearly frequents regularly because the staff recognizes him. He hands Ty the menu and asks Ty what he wants. Ty, who also has social skills and is like, I don't know about this. I don't know what the rules are here. Decides not to make the choice on ordering something because he's not trying to hit him up style. So he passes the choice to Pat. And then Pat makes a neutral choice by just saying, we'll have whatever the chef special is for today. By making the neutral choice to just accept the chef special, even though Pat picked the place, he is making sure Ty understands that Pat will not be forcing him to do anything. I just really love their date. Like, there's so much there. Pat is really charming. He's funny. And then moving along, the next thing Ty does, which is insane, is introduce Pat to his dad without warning. And the dad ain't shit either, picking on Pat the whole time. (laughs) It was funny. (laughs) He hangs out with their dad, and immediately Pat's instinct is to show the proper respect to Ty's father. He doesn't get in the middle of their fight. He doesn't ask about it. He just sort of gives them a way to end the fight now. He politely asks about Ty and his other brothers, giving Ty a chance to talk about his family if he wants to. They go back to Ty's place. Pat, not really thinking about it, walks in on Ty while he's changing, gets to see all the goodies. And then they have this intense moment and they end up making out on the floor. I want to make a special note here about La Pluie. La Pluie is one of the first BLs that I can really remember ever. That when there is a moment of intense sexual tension, releases it. So often, these shows just bait us. They titillate us. They want us to get all hot and bothered about, whoa, they's about to kiss. And then they interrupt it with some nonsense or they just don't do anything with it and they tease us and they make bits out of it. And as much as I enjoy these shows, it was so refreshing to see a show go. What if we release it? What if they actually start making out on the floor? What then? I get frustrated a lot of times in BL about how they make these boys dickless. And there's this really lovely thing in La Pluie that Pat's concern was Ty's pleasure. But they stop because Ty isn't ready. And though Pat was a bit caught up in the moment, he catches himself. And they back off and they have a conversation about what else is going on. Pat learns a little bit more about Ty. Low-key, they played with some of the Yowie framing in that moment because as big as Pete is, he crouches himself down and makes himself lower than Ty and it's kind of looking at up at him in cute ways because you'd expect Pat to be maybe the semi in this sort of framing. And they do that early on by putting Pat on the left with the date shit when Ty goes to see him. But Pat is querying that narrative by intentionally moving himself to the right when he's trying to get closer to Ty. When they're on their Chiang Mai trip, one of the most insane things this show does that I will never get over is they're sharing the bed. Both of them are awake. They know what's going to happen. We know what's going to happen. But 
everyone knows Ty is not exactly ready because we haven't climbed that mountain yet. We haven't dealt with the core angst. We're both two men who are very attracted to each other, and we know we're attracted to each other. So they start to get hot and bothered, but Ty has them stop again, and Pat, a strongest soldier, (laughs) pulls himself back again. But Ty, listening to his good sis Bo, is like, I can't keep leaving this man hanging. I can't keep starting these things and then not finishing it. He offers to blow Pat, and it was very explicit that that's what happened. We know. It's so impressive to me that this show presented Ty giving Pat head as a way for him to maintain control over a sexual encounter. The whole notion about giving pleasure as a form of control is something we have not really seen explored in BL this way. I really like that this show focused on the different ways that two men are going to become more physically and sexually comfortable with each other over time. And even after everything, after Ty has cast him aside, he still chooses to go back to Ty and try and reconcile with him because he did lose his temper. And that was a scary moment. And I think I like that Pat losing his temper was made as jarring and scary as possible in the show because I feel like really perfect characters need to have this intense rage about them because I have never met a chill pacifist in my life. The choice to be kind is so hard in a world full of cruelty. And I like that underneath the surface of Pat is a temper that he has to manage and maintain. I love my man. I can't remember who it is. Somebody put this on Tumblr that Pat is kind, but he's not always nice. And Ty is nice, but he's not always kind. Exactly. Ty seems like, you know, gentle and soft. But when it comes down to it, Ty is the one in the narrative who's actually kind of cruel. It's very interesting to put that on a romantic protagonist. How it ends up getting read is incredibly interesting because that person is the romantic protagonist. It ends up getting cast aside. And here I go back into Calvinism and the green flag label that (laughs) I thought I had ventilated with bed friend. As soon as you said that, my third eye opened and I was like, (laughs) here I go again. Where's my bat? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't get this out of my system the first time somehow. But yeah, the way that that's received in a protagonist, the fact that the protagonist is kind of a little bit of a bitch boy, quite frankly, (laughs) gets glossed over. And then the person who made a mistake has it sort of loom large. I got a little bit mad about that with the fandom too. Like, we got all this bending over backwards, week in and week out for Lomfon's rude ass and Ty's rude ass. Pat loses his temper once. Punches a boy, punches a wall. And we're like, oh, he's dangerous. And I'm like, I hate this. And there's a lot more I want to unpack here in the future. This does not feel like the right time to do it. But we really need to talk about that at some point as a community that engages with romance. Because we have a really fucked up relationship with violence. Like, Pat 
Not leaving a mark on Lomfon was seen as egregious. Punching a door in frustration was seen as egregious. But like Bad Buddy opens up with Pran shit kicking Pat to the fucking ground as these boys beat the shit out of each other. I think like it's a lot of things. It's a it's a question of who gets to be angry and how anger is portrayed and men's anger and the way that women because of the way that we have to be socialized to protect ourselves the way that we view men's anger that is sort of slightly different from how men will view men's anger and how being familiar with certain times of angry expressions from men is like one of the reasons that women shrink from that kind of stuff and there's so many women in bl fandom like i understood where that was coming from but at the same time the show is so legible. It's very legible that this is Pat reaching the end of his rope. And it's very clear in the show that Pat would never actually hurt anybody. He doesn't even really hurt Lamphon. Lamphon is fine. He gets his ass kicked a little bit, but he's fine. As our great friend, Wen Kashung apologist pointed out, this show has a makeup budget. My boy Ty got his shit fucked up on that mountain. And the makeup crew made sure he looked messed up, even in that wet filming situation. They could have afforded to make that boy's mouth bruised the way it should have been for talking the way he was. And my man doesn't. And that's the thing that gets me. Like, everybody else is allowed to be an asshole. But Pat, who I believe deserves to be righteously angry about this shit going down at this point in their relationship. And it's like, oh, jeez. I don't know about that, bruh. We see through Pat's relationship with Nara that he would never actually hurt Ty. And that's why the intensity of his frustration, I think, should have been the focus, not the expression of it. I really resented the way it felt like everyone suddenly wanted to regulate Pat's frustration. I hate the whole notion that he is only allowed to be upset in an attractive, gentle way. Because he's been gentle the whole goddamn time, and everyone has been so rude and disrespectful of him. Like, there is room to talk about the expression of Pat's frustration, but you can't have that room if you're using it in a reductive manner to just completely kick him out the window as a character. I don't buy that. I don't subscribe to it. With Nara, we saw that Pat is capable of dealing with difficult romantic situations because Nara is treated so sympathetically about everything that went down with her and Pat. How she feels frustrated about Pat's soulmate connection with Ty long before they start talking, I think is valid because she felt frustrated. She felt frustrated that Anytime it rains, Pat gets moody and it feels like somebody else is in the middle of their relationship. And you got the sense from them accidentally making out in the rain one time where Pat immediately cut it off and apologized that he didn't want to put Ty through that even before he knew who Ty was. I got that Nara felt frustrated that her intimacy was scheduled around the goddamn rain she felt an innate jealousy in her own relationship that she knew she was struggling with and couldn't exactly cope with. 
it wasn't fair to either of them. Pat's like, look, if I can get rid of this, I would, because I do care about you. Nara takes some time. She gets to reflect. She decides to grow. She knows that it's hard out here in these goddamn streets. And Pat is a keeper. And she tries to do the big romantic gesture. And that's why Ty liked her, because that boy loves big romantic gestures. And Pat lets her down. And he apologizes. He's like, I'm sorry I may have led you on. I want things to be okay between us because what happened between us was real. It mattered to me. And I still care about you, even if I can't give you my heart like that anymore. Yeah, we should stay friends. It's kind of a cliche, but it feels earned here. And I also like that Nara got to be disappointed and heartbroken and upset about it too. I like that people cared about how she felt. They wanted to reintegrate her into the group. The other vets liked Nara, even if she wasn't going to be Pat's girlfriend anymore. But they understand that in the breakup, they're Pat's friends. And you know those people respect relationship dynamics because they didn't just look to Pat to see if Nara was okay to be around. They looked to same tie to see how the new person was going to feel about that, particularly because he just ran up a fucking mountain because of her. And he says it's okay. And they were so eager to reintegrate her into the group. And then she and Dream get to get rolling. And they let us have them at the end. She was like, look, we only got five minutes left in this show. If you're going to get this shit, you better come correct and you better come now. And I loved that because the girlies deserved it. She said, I'm grown. Give it your best shot. I saw some frustrations with the ending and how a lot of the episode was Ty running around by himself and meeting some random characters at the end and us not spending a lot of time with Pat, like Pat and I really talking at the end. But it works for me. Ty had to deal with the silence for the first time. Like he inflicts silence on so many people. And now he's the one who has to sit in the shit that he made. And I liked him meeting a couple that had challenges to deal with in their relationship and being told once again, you just got to do the work, bro. You got to talk to each other. You got to listen to what your partner is saying to you. And I like that the final scene with Ty and Pat is Ty not hesitating. Man, this show was so rewarding to watch because it wasn't trying to trick us. The show was wearing its bona fides on the tin. It was very clear where it wanted to go, what it wanted to do. It wasn't playing with us. It wasn't trying to gotcha with us. It was just laying out its central idea and continually reinforcing it throughout the story and the narrative for the entire way through. Does that make it like unpredictable and exciting? No, but it made it really enjoyable to watch, to watch something lay the path and then walk the path was more fun than I expected it to be, I have to say. And and when we're talking about laying the path and walking the path, man, let's just get to it. Let's talk about Tien and Lomphon. Here are the polar opposites, okay? Because in Thai and Pat's, like, you have an agnostic and an apostate. Like, they're not as far apart as somebody like Tien and Lomphon, who are a true believer and a total atheist. How do they get to the middle? All the shit that happens in the middle, especially, how do they get through that and find their way through each other? Basically, Lomphon has to grovel. 
and I enjoy a good gruffle. So I had a great time. Here's the thing. My boy Tien deserves so much more than he got. My man initiated the gay pinky touch. And then Long Fawn was like, hmm, I don't know what's going on. But I know that I got these special signs from the universe about this stupid keychain that I need to go kiss this boy's brother. Not the one reaching out with the gay pinky touch while taking care of me while I'm sick twice. I'm going to stay mad at this man. (laughs) This man ruined a gay pinky touch. Tien is so patient with both of them. Like Pat's beating up Long Fawn. Ty is screaming at the universe. Clearly, suddenly, they can all hear in the rain. Tien doesn't know what's going on, but he cuts through the bullshit right away with Long Fawn. It's like, I liked you. Why are you being like this? Even when Ty didn't realize what was going on, Tien holds back his own disappointment that his brother maybe didn't necessarily see him the right way and still says, thank you for always being on my left. Ah, I love that boy so much. He's so good. He deserves so much more. He was dressing like an early 2000s lesbian the whole time, serving nothing but constant looks. He was so fun to watch, especially when he was being kind of sassy with everyone. I like Tien as a character. I like his wardrobe. (laughs) Don't even get me started. That outfit he wore to the wedding, unreal. I loved loved it it so much. So good. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Unreal. Real. That whole family looked good. Like, holy shit. <laughs> we didn't even talk about Sangnua. And oh god, we're never gonna get forgiven by one of the clowns if we never even bring up Sangnia. He was so awkward and goofy. I I liked that boy too. I loved Bo. I loved the vets. What's so great about the side characters with La Pluie is they do their role just enough to help us understand the world in which these characters exist. Like, Ty is surrounded by people trying to just pour love all over that boy. And he will just not let them. Pat is surrounded by a community that loves him, that wants the best for him, that wants to make sure that he gets what he deserves, too. Oh, my God. Just what an excellent show. The thing that I think that we want to end up on is I said before that Love, Louis is basically a filmed romance novel. If you are aware of how like these romance novels get set up, a lot of the time it will be multiple stories set in the same universe where each of the characters basically gets to fall in love. We know at least that the La Pluie people seem to want to get into all of the Sang brothers and their various romances. I don't know if they will get to, but what do you think about the obvious setup for the Sanctian sequel at the end of the show and this idea of going into like a Bridgerton-esque series of romances using all of the same characters. How do you feel about that? Honestly, I'm a little bit nervous because I just worry that the audience won't respond to it really well. I feel like a significant portion of the audience actively did not get La Pluie. They were really caught up in the soulmate stuff. And I just feel like a lot of the audience maybe didn't gel with all the themes. So as usual, Ben is the one thinking about everybody else while I very selfishly think about myself. (laughs) (laughs) 
And I'm just like, give it to me. I'm ready. I'm here for it. I trust these writers. I trust this director. I think that if they get a chance to delve into this universe in more detail and focusing on different characters, I think that they can nail it. I'm ready to see what happens if they get a chance to do it. I don't care about whether people are going to get it correctly or not. I don't. I kind of care, but at the same time, I don't care. So that being said, Ben, is this a 10 or a chop? La Pluie is probably in my top five BLs of all time. And it's probably in my top 10 shows of all time right now. It's a 10. It's a 10. (laughs) It's a 10. All right. So for Ben, it's a 10. For me, it's definitely a 10. That leaves us with La Pluie as a 10 show. And we're back. Okay, Ben. So a lot of ink spilled over these two shows. I don't think I've seen so much meta being written probably since the Bad Buddy era. We've got a strange combo here, a show that was incredibly legible and then a show that made you work a little bit harder. And in both instances... It feels like people didn't get it. <laughs> I don't know. What are your thoughts? What do you feel about this? One of the big stories of this year is BL maturing as a genre and beginning to genre blend. Like in a lot of ways, La Pluie wants to straddle the line between BL and classic romance. And I think it does a pretty admirable job at it. Whereas step by step, feels like the BL elements that it's trying to manage are holding it back from what it really wants to be. That feels like the sort of thing that inevitably happens with this type of outgrowth. La Pluie doesn't really want to say things sort of directly or inherently about queerness. It wants to talk about romance itself and romance as a genre. Whereas step-by-step, really wants to talk about queer stuff in a real world. And that's a whole lot messier to deal with. They both did some things really, really well. And the audience connected to that. And what fascinated me so much about it was that the audience felt compelled to talk to each other about it. I felt like that happened maybe more organically on its own with Step by Step. Some of us kind of forced the issue on La Pluie. I know that I was part of it, like very, very directly. And it's been fun seeing people respond to that by just us saying very earnestly, please tell us what you're thinking and engaging with what people are writing. I think it's good for us and the genre to take it more seriously. It has been really fascinating for me seeing people engaging the way they are. But I legitimately feel a bit fatigued by it. And like the last time I felt fatigue in BL truly was at the beginning. I know a lot of you don't watch as much content as I do. Like you couldn't possibly do it. It's not healthy for you. 
I don't know how starved some of you have been for content that you can genuinely connect to, that can help you feel a little bit less lonely about yourself. And like, I'd never gotten tired of queer cinema. I'd gotten hurt by it. I'd never gotten like genuinely tired of just being in it that long. And I feel a little tired from all of the intense writing that La Pluie and Step by Step kind of demanded of us. And it's a really fascinating time for me as a fan to feel like the shows are demanding more of us as viewers as we watch them than to just be pleased by them or intrigued by them so that we'll engage and buy merch and stuff. It was really fascinating having two shows this season that really feel like they wanted us to think about things along with them. I know that you and I have talked about that feeling of fatigue. Like for me, this is the most anything I've watched in years. So the level of exhaustion that I felt and then to have these two shows sort of spring up at the end of the season and demand, you're correct, demand my attention not just in terms of the shows themselves, but then in the reaction to the shows. It sort of left me a little hollowed out, almost a little wrung out. I don't know yet if in a good way or a bad way. It's yet to be seen. I remember saying to you at one point, I was like, I need something mindless to just sit and watch for the next couple of weeks, at least, or like maybe longer. I just need something that I don't need to think about. And that's not a place that I'm accustomed to being in media because I am normally the let's get deep into it, let's get into the guts, put your arm in and come back with a beating heart kind of girl when it comes to the stories. And right now I'm just like, eh, I want something shallow and surface that I don't have to think too much about, please, just for a little while. And then I can re-engage my brain later. It's a very strange place. For me to be in. I don't think it's a place that I've ever been in. But yeah, these two shows, they took it out of me. I gotta say. And that's how we end the season, ladies and ladies. We are a little wrung out. And we'll probably talk about that a little bit more in the lineup. But yeah, we tired, y'all. <laughs> It's going to be fascinating, like, in the listen back over this. Because we talked early in the season about how slow it was for me to get into the spring season. Coming off of the the winter hangover from Moonlight Chicken and Shikari, My School President, and a Warp Effect. And it's weird now at the end of the spring season where I don't necessarily feel like a tired hangover from it. It's a hard feeling to describe because the winter shows were really good and really hit something in me. The winter shows were emotionally intense. There was like a heavy emotional hangover coming off of the winter. I don't feel that emotional hangover now, but I feel mentally drained. Yeah, it's a far more cerebral feeling. And like the thing for me is I grow stronger on that feeling. And it's going <laughs> to be hard for me if these new shows don't keep up because it's, it's what I want. I do not want to yuck anyone's yums. Like there is absolutely a place for fluff in this genre. I will never, ever vote against the silly and fun shows. 
I just also really love meaty shows that make me think really hard while I'm watching them. And I love when that feels intentional. Like we do a lot of hard thinking on our own about these shows, but damn, is it satisfying when it feels like the show itself is in that conversation with us. And I really hope that this isn't the last time we have an adult swim episode because we got a bunch of really thinky shows to think about. Like I was very harsh to step by step when we talked about that show. But I don't want T to stop thinking as hard as he does. I want him to stay in the guts of trying to unpack where queer people fit in modern Thai cinema. That's a really important thing to figure out. And queer people should be part of that conversation. And like, even if I didn't think this was the best execution of his ideas, I don't want that conversation to get missed because his show didn't land consistently for everyone. I'm tired, y'all. I'm so tired. <laughs> I, I'm so I'm so energized. My brain hurts. <laughs> and this is the shit that I normally love, but my brain, it hurts. And my brain, she needs a break. And so, a break she shall have. We'll be back at you next time with the lineup, but that's it for us now. We're just going to wrap it up on Adult Swim, our first Adult Swim episode. May there be others. We out. Say bye to the people, Ben. Peace. <laughs> <laughs>